Composing music for the harp is a unique challenge, but we're going to help you get started here next. Hello and welcome to the Musician Toolkit, episode number 28. I am David Lane, your host, and it is great to be with you once again. Back on episode 18, we talked about the clarinet, and I mentioned how this is the first of an occasional series that we'll have called the Instrumental Spotlight series that may happen uh, once a quarter or twice a year. I'm not sure how often it's going to be spread out over hopefully the long life of this podcast. So I just want to say up front, and just in case you thought this this was the second of that series, it's not. Down the road, we will talk about the harp as part of the official Instrumental Spotlight series, but that series is for learning how best to play for it. We'll include some information about composing as well, so it would be a more thorough overview. But this is a very specific look at the harp. If you are a composer, an orchestrator, or an arranger, every instrument has its unique challenges. But the harp sometimes feels like a special case. As we mentioned, it's, it's not really a chromatic instrument because you can't quickly and easily play a chromatic scale like you can on other instruments. But at the same time, you do have the option fairly quickly of having any of the 12 pitches of the chromatic scale. When you're composing for harp, one of the big problems that composers have is that very often they, they happen to be pianists as well and not have much experience playing the harp. And so there's a lot of assumptions. For example, the harp and the piano both play on the same grand staff, usually treble clef on top, bass clef on the bottom. They have a fairly similar range. The harp is just a little bit narrower on the low and high end of the piano. And at a quick glance, the music looks similar in terms of what to play and the types of patterns you get. There are some things that you can do to get better at learning how to compose for the harp. One of the things you can do is get out an orchestration textbook. Another thing is to do some score study on orchestral scores that have harp parts or just harp music in general. And to be sure, you're going to learn some of what you need to know just from doing that. But you probably might not learn everything. Another good thing that you, of course, can do is talk to harpists. Talk to talk to them, ask them what they like to play, uh, what are the things that they prefer to see in music, and what do they prefer not to. And I think that's a step up from just doing score study or just reading orchestral textbooks. But maybe your best overall solution is a harpist who specializes in new music, who loves to collaborate with composers, who is not only aware of what the harp can do and what composers like to do, but is willing to go with the back and forth to kind of come up with new things that the harp can do, but also while helping the composers to understand what is actually easy to play and what is a challenge to play and what might not come off exactly. So we're going to be talking today about the harp as an instrument, as a pragmatic instrument. What are the things that the harp does well? What are the things that you should probably think twice about before you compose to the harp? So my guest today is exactly that fourth type of resource that I described. Her name is Danielle Kuntz. She specializes in 
new music for the harp, collaborating with composers, but she also has a consulting program that composers and arrangers can subscribe to to learn more about the limitations and uh, the options that you have when composing for the harp. So here's my conversation with Danielle Kuntz. Well, Danielle, it's great to have you on the podcast. And like so many other people in 2023, kind of feel like we know each other already, but it's what we're meeting for the first time. It's like I know you through uh, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook, but it's great, it's great to meet you in person. Yeah, absolutely. No, the pandemic is great for building a lot of connections. And I feel like a lot of the work that I do is from people I met on Twitter. So yay, Twitter. Yes. <laughs> um, although I, I'm not on Twitter as much lately, which may be the, you know, I think I, I know a few people that are kind of like that, finding other places to go. But uh, a lot of people still find it valuable. It's where they built a community in the first place. And for me, I kind of went from Facebook to Instagram, then to Twitter. So I, I guess I don't have quite as much of a stake in that as others. But you know, that's why there's a lot of social media platforms for, for all people out there. <laughs> and it's cool to kind of interact with the same people across different platforms because you're like, oh, I know you. Oh, you're here too. And you yeah. really get to know people just seeing them different places. So today we're going to be talking about the harp, but specifically in terms of how it's perceived by the composer or the arranger or the harpist playing new music by a composer or an arranger. So you are uniquely qualified for that because this is kind of your mission uh, as uh, as you market yourself, you know, online. As I see you, you are talking uh, specifically to composers and arrangers about harp music. And just what kind of led you to this path? Because I know that you started off as kind of a mainstream classical harpist. So Tell, tell us a little bit about your journey to this point. Yeah, so there's been a couple of things that really led me to this point. The first thing is I felt a little dissatisfied with the existing harp repertoire, mm -hmm. um, just because it's, there's not as much of it there um, as other instruments, especially going back, the further back you go, the less music that you have. So like the harp, there's not many pieces from the classical era. We start to get a little bit more in the you know, romantic era. We get a lot more in the contemporary era, but it's still a lot more sparse than like the piano repertoire, the violin repertoire and so on. So I was one who was always like wanting more. I played piano for a while just because I enjoyed a little bit more variety in the repertoire, but physically it was just a lot to keep up with two instruments. So I was like, oh, let's get more music on the harp. Um, the other thing that kind of led me to that point is a lot of my friends in school were composers, so they started writing for the harp. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I have people writing music for me. So I started, you know, collaborating with them. It was a really fun endeavor. But along that route, I kind of realized there's not a lot of great resources out there for composing for the harp. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. We can delve into that a little bit later in the discussion. But I started really exploring, okay, how do you write for the harp in a way that's idiomatic, that's comfortable, but still gives room for exploration and trying new things. And that's really kind of what led me to this point where right now, pretty much exclusively what I do is contemporary music. Um, I call it new music. It's not all avant-garde crazy music. Right. Some of it is, I love that, but it's also right. really cool to um, have more traditional, more accessible new music as a way to help you know, get other musicians involved in new music when they don't have that same contemporary music 
experience. So I'm all, all about newly composed music and also empowering composers to be able to write for the harp confidently, effectively, and in the way that harpists will be able to also play the music. Right. Uh, and uh, the harp is is definitely a unique instrument. I mean, one of the things that I kind of cringe about is uh, <laughs> as a composer myself is I, I think it was probably close to 20 years ago that I, I wrote my first piece for harp. Um, I didn't know anybody who played harp at the time. My wife had not yet taken it up. My wife is a violinist, violist who in her 30s decided, you know, she'd always wanted to learn harp. So she started with a folk harp, got got one with, uh, you know, levers on all the strings. And then, you know, about four years ago, finally bought, you know, her first concert grand and so forth. But before then, I didn't know anybody and, and nor the community that she had met in this area. And uh, the University of Indiana has like an inner or like an annual competition for composers as part mm -hmm. of their big harp competition. So I wrote a piece and, uh, and my, my wife's teacher, maybe about eight or nine years ago said she was interested in taking a look at it. So for the record, I was runner up or, or you know, I mean, I, I don't even know it, that may have been just a case of you were 100th place. I don't know what it meant, <laughs> but, but you know, I didn't, I didn't win, but the teacher took a look at it and uh she says it's really good if i could just make some edits and what i got back hardly resembled what i wrote in the first place and i was using an orchestration book and so forth so i thought i knew a lot you know uh, going in i think most composers think they know more than they do <laughs> in, until they have that experience but um it was it was pleasing to me that the last heart piece that i wrote and had someone edit didn't need that much attention to it but but harp is one of those instruments that i always want to have a performer take a look at and you know i think the more that we composers know in advance you know the the better you know so mm -hmm. that it's not such an overwhelming uh edit when when that happens but and i tend to you know suggest to composers like work with a harpist early in the process so that way you can get your sketches get your initial ideas kind of you know explore it with a harpist, have them play it, see how it sounds, then you can develop that into a full piece. Because there's nothing more frustrating than having an idea, you develop it into a whole piece, and then realize that initial idea doesn't really work on the harp, and then you have to rewrite everything. Right. Like, that's not fun for everyone, for anyone. Like, so having yeah, and, uh, you know, that collaboration happen earlier rather than later saves everyone a lot of time and frustration. Right. Uh, I mean, if you're composing or arranging, you know, it's a good idea to know something, you know, about each instrument. But the harp is unique to me in a couple of ways. First of all, it's not included, at least in my experience, in like your instrumental methods courses. You know, you, there are courses you can take in school for string methods, brass, percussion, woodwind. And, you know, the harp doesn't really get included in that. And And, and one of the reasons for that is like, there aren't really a lot of like harps that you that you want on mat you know masses of students playing <laughs> you know it's like they're very expensive instruments um but also i kind of um i categorize the harp along with the timpani in mm -hmm. in kind of a you know in a weird pairing and <laughs> and that is that you have to really strategize what can be played so like the timpani the, the obvious limitations are you have four 
four drums that you can count on most orchestras having and each drum has a range and also so you can have four notes at once it takes time and a little bit of effort to retune each drum in the middle of a performance you know so mm -hmm. you have to always be aware of okay what what four timpanis do i have now uh which one can i change how long do they have to change it and and i think to me that's the most extreme example but a harp is kind of similar you have seven different strings that you can have at once so to me it's not uh it's not truly a chromatic instrument it's funny my wife had a documentary about the harp history on youtube this morning and someone said you know that the harp is a chromatic instrument because of the pedals but i have to disagree because you can't quickly as easily as you know an instrument with three valves you know mm -hmm. as, as easily as a piano change so that's the most obvious difference you know between a piano and harp to me is is that the harp is limited to seven notes at a time but a good harpist can quickly change any of those seven notes in ways that i think that are creative beyond you know what a pianist can do and and, and I'll, I'll be sure to share one of one of my favorites before we're done but what are you know what are some other ways that the harp differs from the piano in terms of an instrument that you can play yeah so there's a lot of differences between the harp and the piano, but there's also a lot of similarities. So I actually, when I'm talking about to composers about writing for the harp, I do try to highlight those similarities and differences with the piano just to make it a little bit more down to earth. So the range is pretty similar between the piano and the harp. The piano has a little bit more of a range. Mm -hmm. The difference is the resonance of the harp. So the piano is going to automatically dampen the notes unless you're intentionally sustaining using like a damper pedal or holding down the keys with your finger. Mm -hmm. The harp is going to sustain indefinitely, depending on the range that you're working on, unless you have a second action to come in and stop the sound. So that's a very different way of thinking about it. It has huge ramifications for writing for the harp. And the big thing is the lower strings are going to resonate a lot longer than the higher strings. So the low strings on the harp, they can ring for up to a minute, like a really long time, those big wire strings. Whereas the ones on the top, they'll decay really quickly. So there's a lot of nuance in that and different ways that you can utilize these different registers. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's not like the piano, it's not clean in that yeah. sense. You have more of that muddy sound, so you have to be a little bit more strategic with the registers. Um, another similarity and difference is pianists and harpists, we both use two hands. Um, so we do have that, you know, polyphonic option to be able to play multiple voices at the same time. Um, but there are some key differences on the piano. Number one, you're using five fingers on the harp. You only use four. Um, the reason is the pinky finger is way too short to reach the strings and funny story. I had one composer comment on some thread. I was on somewhere saying, I just don't understand why harpists refuse to use their pinky finger. Like, why mm -hmm. won't they even try? I, I still laugh about that because it's not that we refuse to use it. It's just, it's too short to work. And no matter what the problem is or the pattern is that you're trying to play, like any other solution is going to work better than trying to use the pinky finger. Um, and that's just because of the modern instrument um, with the tension and the spacing of the strings. Um, there were some earlier harps where harpists were using five fingers and that's a whole other tangent that we can go down. But right. harp, four notes at a time per hand. You can only play four fingers. Piano, there's five. 
Um, the other thing is that the layout of the hands on the piano, the hands are oriented opposite each other. So you have thumbs in the middle, fingers on the outside. So if you're thinking about like natural interval spacing on the piano, you're going to be a little bit more comfortable having smaller intervals on the top of a chord or on the outside of the chord, rather outside of the chord um, right. or larger intervals between the thumb and the second finger. So on the inside of the chord, uh, there's exceptions, but that's kind of your general layout. The harp is a little bit different, whereas the hands are going to be oriented in the same direction. So thumbs on top, fingers on bottom. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about that natural interval spacing, it's always going to be the tops of the chords that you want to have slightly larger intervals. Seconds are a little bit less idiomatic on the top of right. the chord. Not impossible, but it moves the whole hand up, which means you can't reach as far for the bottom. So there's a lot of like little details. I have a whole spreadsheet that I give to um, right. composers who take my course with like, these are the intervals that work between these fingers if you want to go down and be that nitpicky. Um, and then similarly, large intervals on the bottom of a chord are difficult because you don't have that big of a reach between your fourth and your third fingers. So there's some little differences in you know the interval layout and the hands and things like that. And then you have the obvious chromaticism. And I think you said it really well. The harp, you have access to seven notes at a time, seven pitches or pitch classes if you want to be um, a little bit more technical. Piano, you have access to 12. Right. Of course, the piano, you only have 12. You can't do microtones, which everyone's like, <laughs> we want to do microtones now. Um, piano, you have 12. Harp, you have seven. You can be really strategic, though, in how you navigate that. You, It doesn't have to be, those seven notes don't have to be a straight scale. You can right. have any kind of order because you have access to three pitches per string with the pedals, flat, natural, and sharp. So you can do a whole lot with that as long as you're aware there's only seven pitches you can do at a time unless you're changing pedals to change those pitches, but it's still only seven. No matter what you do, you only right. have access to seven pitches at a time. Right. Probably worth noting, uh, you know, that we're, you know, we're talking about a pedal harp or, you know, known as a concert grand, um, you know, there, there is... Of course, you know, you can have just a plain old full carp, which, you know, basically it's kind of like writing for harmonica. You kind of got to know what key you're in <laughs> and stay right. in. Uh, but you also have lever harps where you can, you know, sharp, you know, well, I don't know how it works. I guess, I guess you really only go one way, right? Like you can tune You can it only go one way, but you can start with different tunings. Yeah. So right. most lever harpists will tune the E flat just because that gives the most diatonic key options. Um, my lever harpist tuned the E flat, right. but you can adjust the tuning if you want to. Right. And what's really cool about the lever harp. So the pedal harp is going to be changing all the pitches across the harp. So you change the C yes. pedal to sharp, all the C's on the harp are sharp. Mm -hmm. The lever harp, you can only change one at a time, which is a little bit limiting if you're thinking diatonically. Yeah. But if you want to write, you know, bitonal music or go crazy, you can literally have different keys across the harp, which is really right. cool. And I think needs to be explored more. Plus, there's well, my... so many harpists who only play lover harp and they want music. And there's so little good music out there for lover harp. So composers out there write for lover harp. Yes. You'll get your music played <laughs> if you write it well. But right. there's that always that caveat. Write right. for lover harp. Um. One of my favorite aspects of harp, especially, you know, pedal harp, uh, is where the different ways that you can combine the strings to come up with some very interesting glisses. You know, like one of the cliches uh, 
that I was so happy to discover how to do is a diminished seventh gliss on the harp, mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, harder on the piano to, to, to make that arpeggio sound. But like, if you want a, you know, just for example, a C diminished seven, you know, you just have to take your seven letters and you just think, well, you have your A, B sharp, C, D sharp, E flat, F sharp, G flat. And, and, and that's all you have to do is just kind of set those pedals and then just, you gliss up and down and it sounds great and very natural, but you could also, if you're a composer, you doesn't have to be, you know, that obvious. You can come up with all kinds of interesting scales, flat, certain tones, sharp others. Um, and, and, and your technique with your hands is going to be pretty much the same. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, if you put that on the piano, you might have to come up with a different fingering pattern or something like that. So like uh, what's fun is you can actually rearrange the pedals so you can have, you know, up and down steps in a ascending scale, which there's actually one section in the Ravel introduction in Allegro where we re-pedal it just a little bit to make it fit the hand so you can hear that up and down, but we're actually playing notes straight up physically. Um, it's super cool because right. playing notes in the same direction works a lot better on the harp. Um, and that goes into like the motions of playing. It just takes a little bit more motion on the harp to play a note than on the piano. So thinking and things going a little bit more linearly helps, but there's creative things that you can still do with that, like pedals. Whenever I hear statements, you know, that, that begin with the phrase, nobody or everybody, I always like to check it, you know, whenever I can. <laughs> and one of them, one of the things I hear is that everybody changes the way Waltz of the Flowers cadenza is written. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's, is that the case with you? Yeah, like, it is the case. <laughs> Yeah, it's so like Tchaikovsky didn't write that very well, apparently. I, I've heard a lot of different theories about it, and, you know, it's possible that he just wrote a something that was supposed to be ad-libbed, essentially. Yeah. Um, but the way that it's written with the opposing hand arpeggios, it just, it sounds clunky, it doesn't sound very flowy. So we rewrite that, and that's just kind of like a written edit that is passed down from harpist to harpist to harpist where we play that just as straight descending arpeggios. There are actually a few harpists that play it as written, which is really interesting, but there's so many of these like unspoken rewrites in the orchestral literature, which is, doesn't help anyone in all honesty. Like we need to get these codified because number one, you're relying on being able to have access to this handwritten rewrite that you've gotten from your teacher and your teacher's teacher and passed mm -hmm. down. And if you didn't get access to this one part, harpists were all over the Facebook groups like, hey, do you have the rewrite for such and such a piece? I have to play it in the concert and the librarian doesn't have the rewrite for me um, situation. Um, but also composers who are looking at you know, orchestral music to learn how to write for the harp, they're reading the originals. They're not yeah. reading the rewrites. So a lot of the time, what you see on IMSLP is not what harpists are actually going to be playing. Right. Um, and that kind of brings us to the next thing. What, uh, you know, there, there are, there are scores that we can look at, uh, to get some idea, you know, and, and, and as you say, may not always be the best advice, but there are also orche orchestration books out there. And, uh, I just wanted to just kind of pick your brain to see what do you think that they generally do well? And what do you think they're that, what are they leaving out? So 
A lot of the orchestration books I found really focus heavily on the pedals, which is important for sure. Glissandos, which is a big feature of the harp, and extended techniques. Right. Those are all great, but I feel like that leaves out a lot because in all honesty, a lot of the difficult and awkward music I encounter often has nothing to do with the pedals. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it really has to do with like the layout of the notes and how those notes fit in the hands. So I would say if you're wanting to learn how to write for the harp, there's a couple other resources I highly advise. Um, the first one is Yolanda Condonass' book, Writing Well for the Modern Harp. That's really the best book I found to really go through in detail how to understand and write for the harp. Um, most of the orchestration books are just incomplete. Adler's really incomplete. It's mm -hmm. okay. It's not bad. It's just really incomplete. So that's that's where I would probably start. Um, and then I have a couple other resources that we could include in the um, show notes if we want to. Okay. But there's a lot that you need to think about beyond what you're going to find in the orchestration books. Great. Uh, so I know we, we, we talked about the hand difference, you know, especially between the piano uh, is, you know, definitely something that you have to keep in mind when you're writing for harp. Um, tell us a little bit about the range, you know, you like the, the, the registers of the harp act differently. Mm -hmm. I know. So tell us a little bit about like when you're considering the range of the harp. Yeah. So if you're looking, you know, in most of the orchestra books online, most places will categorize the harp into three different ranges. So the low range where you have the wire strings, the mid range where you have the gut strings, and then the top range where you have the nylon strings. Mm -hmm. All of those strings have a slightly different tone quality just because of the nature of the strings. I like to actually divide the harp into four categories or four ranges just because that reflects a little bit more of how it works. So I still think of it the low range, which has your wire strings as the bottom octave and a half of the harp. Then you have your mid-low register, which is where you get the gut strings up to about middle C. And this register has that really warm sound that you get from the gut strings, but it still has that long resonance that you would have from the low strings. So that's where you tend to get that really muddy register if you're writing too fast or have intervals too close together. Um, yeah. That's where we have the buzzing that happens. Harpists hate buzzing. We spend our whole lives trying not to buzz. Um, mm -hmm. But that register is particularly difficult just because of that resonance. Um, moving up, when you get above middle C, up about two octaves, this is your, really your sweet spot of the harp. Um, you still have that warm sound from the gut strings, but the resonance is a lot shorter. So there's a lot less to worry about in there as far as buzzing and the resonance. And then you have your top register of the harp where you have those nylon strings. That's where you have your really bright sound. The It sounds very percussive just because there's very little resonance or sustain. So you'll have that initial attack and then it dies away almost immediately. Hmm. It's cool though in orchestra, that top register really projects through the orchestra. So you can use that strategically with doubling other instruments um, just because it has that really piercing percussive quality. So there's a lot to think about. You can be really creative right. with how you use um, all of these different registers and sounds and timbres across the harp. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about the pedals now. So the pedals are the fun part when you're kind of navigating what's possible uh, with the harp. Um, so 
correct correct me if i'm wrong but i the the way i understand is that there's a few things about the pedals that seem almost counterintuitive as you know someone familiar with other instruments and that is you know we normally think of lift up for sharp and then lower for flat but with pedals if i'm not mistaken you you lower it for the to make it sharp Mm -hmm. raise it to make it flat (laughs) yeah it's always ripping it down for sharp up for flat um which is very it's completely the opposite the reason for that is because the pedals are attached to the action of the harp through the pedal rods through the column so as you change a pedal it's turning a disc which then raises the pitch of the string so if you're thinking about it when the pedals are in the top position there's no tension on the string you're releasing that tension and that lowers the pitch you move the pedal down one notch, you add some tension to the string, it has one disc that engages with the string and that raises the pitch. And then you put the pedal down all the way, you're adding all the tension to the string, you have two discs engaged, um, and brings it to sharp. So if you think of it in terms of no tension, the pedals at the top position, you're adding tension as you lower the pedal and that raises the pitch, but it, it is a little backwards. Okay. I know that there are a variety of ways to indicate how the pedal should be notated mm-hmm. and so forth. But the way that I've seen the most common is kind of a diagram, you know, of like where the pedal positions are. And then when there are pedal changes, those are just kind of in text and, you know, sometimes in parentheses, but mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some other ways to go about it, but let's talk about that pedal diagram and just how your pedals are laid out. So uh, my wife told me, did Columbus bring enough food for going to America? Which if you just kind of take out some of those words is it's uh, you you have two, three pedals on the left side of kind of a divider. So, and that's uh, did Columbus bring DCB mm-hmm. and the rest is EFGA. So the, uh, that's just kind of for the composer to have an image of like what the pedals look like. Uh, <laughs> do you have any other, um, an acronyms or sayings that you use for that or <laughs> I actually just think about it going through like the circle of fifths because the mm-hmm. way that the pedals are laid out are very intentional so you have access to like these pairs of pedals so the pedal diagram is such a great tool both for composers and harpists we have them all over our music as a composer you don't need to put them all over the music um we right. sometimes put extras in just you know for our own reference depending on how many pedal changes are happened. So if you see my score from Wagner, I literally have a pedal change every measure just because of how many pedals mm-hmm. are going on. Most pieces, it'll be like one or two per page. Yeah. And if you're like publishing the score, it doesn't have to be that often. Um, but the pedal chart is there just to kind of give you your layout of the pedals. So you have your two lines, you have your vertical line, which is really indicating where the harpist is in relation to the pedal. So that's the big line in the middle. Then you have your horizontal line, which is indicating your natural position. So the middle position of the pedals. Mm -hmm. Then you have your little individual lines, which are going to be either be above the line, which is your flat on the line, which is natural below the line, which is your sharp. And then you have your individual pedals on that. You'll have three, like you mentioned, three on the left side, four on the right side. So here's where the circle of fifths comes into play. The two inner pedals are your B and your E. Those are your first two flats if you're thinking of the key signature. Mm -hmm. We often will be changing those as pairs, so it makes a lot of sense for them to be kind of in the same place, um, you know, mirroring each other. Then you have your C and your F, Mm -hmm. first two sharps. 
Yes. Then D, G, and A. So those are kind of the inner ones. And those also tend to work in pairs as well. It's actually, you know, for your purposes, it's actually not as important to remember which pedal is changed by which foot, um, but to remember kind of where they are. So if you're not sure, there's going to be the C changed by one foot, F changed by the other. Right. Those can move as pairs. If you forget which one is which foot, it's okay. But you're really remembering those pairs as you're going, because we can change pedals at the same time if they're on opposite sides of the harp. So I often really recommend composers just to have like a pedal chart diagram with you as you're composing. Different notation softwares will be really helpful for that, um, like Dorico, or you can just have like a dry erase board with your pedal diagram and have, you know, just mark it as you go to keep track of where you are. Um, that's a really useful tool just to make sure that what you're doing, there's room for the pedal changes to happen. Um, then the other thing that you had mentioned, the pedal changes. Yes. That's where you're doing those individual changes. And mm -hmm. I really like to make it clear that the diagram and the changes are two different things. They yeah. don't replace each other. Right. They both are, they're separate. So mm -hmm. the diagram is your landmark. So if you're writing directions, the landmark is you're going to be turning right at the gas station. The right. pedal diagrams the gas station. The pedal change is you turn right. right. That's your step-by-step -step direction. You need to have both of them. So I see so often pedal charts there instead of changes, and then there will be changes. Mm. We need both. We need both in the score. Right. There's also the big controversy of harpists like to do our own pedals. Don't do them for us. Mm -hmm. um, I have very mixed feelings about that, um, but just be aware, a lot of harpists will prefer to not have the pedals included in the score and to do it themselves. However, if you're writing for the harp, you should probably be thinking through the pedals as you're composing. Otherwise, you're going to end up with something that doesn't work strategically. And my opinion, if you're doing the work already, just leave them in there and have a harpist take a look and make sure they're right. Right. Why do we want to redo your work? Like, I don't, there's no think reason. I've, I don't think I've ever written a piece for harp where at, when I went through it I, I it was a hundred percent correct in terms of like what i thought my pedals were at the time it's like inevitably mm -hmm. it's like wait a minute i don't have g sharp in this section it's g natural and and i never include that change it's like i almost always find things like that i mean but we I, do it too we fill in pedals right. in the piece and then realize two weeks later that oh wait that was supposed to be an f sharp right um courtesy accidentals help so that's another thing to think through but we're here to help you you can ask a harpist for help. It's okay. So here's a big question that that I would have, um, and and I I think I've heard you know different answers of this. Um, I'll just for example, I'll just say, um, let's say that I've got an ostinato going from a C major seven to a C minor seven, and of course that's C E G B and C E flat G B flat. And that's exactly how it would look on a piano. But I'm going back and forth. Well, the harpist is not going not gonna to want to do E flat, B flat, E E natural, B natural with the pedals back and forth. Chances are, if they can get away with it, it'd be better to do like a D sharp and A sharp, you know, that you could move from one to the other. If, you know, this is just kind of an example, if that mm -hmm. works out. Well, to someone who studies music theory, <laughs> it looks wrong to look at a C minor seven as C D sharp G A sharp, but that might be the best way for the harpist to play it. 
Now, what does the harpist prefer? Does the harpist want to see the way to play it, or do they want to see a way that theoretically makes more mainstream sense? This is where the harp is just annoying, I'll say. (laughs) Um, But honestly, it makes a lot more sense to see the way that we would play it rather than the theoretical way. This especially is true when you get into double sharps and double flats, which we get in a lot of the late romantic era music. And those are not printed. We have to, but we're having to think about it differently. So the spelling means that we're playing it on a actually different string, Mm -hmm. different pedals. So it's not just like on the piano. Yes, a G sharp is the same as an A flat because it's literally the same key that you're playing. On the harp, it's not the same key. It's a different string, different pedals. So it it's a really good idea to be thinking through those enharmonics. And again, this is a case. It's okay to ask a harpist if you're not sure. Um, a lot of it does depend on the tempo and a lot of things like that. Is there time to change the pedals versus playing enharmonically? What makes the most sense? And a lot of it really just depends on the context of the piece. Right. And I kind of skimmed over that when I was talking about, like, if you want to gliss a diminished seventh, uh, you know, that's seven strings, that's a four note chord. And I don't think I really emphasize that for those who, you know, didn't, you know, weren't picturing it in their head or, you know, maybe don't have as much of a knowledge of theory. But, uh, you know, a C diminished seventh, you, you would use an A, of course, but B sharp and C natural are the same. It'd be the same key on the piano would be a C. And then D sharp and E flat would be the same black key on a piano. And F sharp and G flat would be the same black key. So you've got three pairs of strings that are doubling, you know, mm-hmm. and create that effect. And it sounds and so cool. Yeah. And that's something that the harp can do. Um, it also, you know, it's, uh, it's a way also something I guess to keep in mind, if you want the sound of a repeated note, uh, I don't think harpists really like to like repeat the same string over and over any more than a piano likes to do the same uh, key over and over, but you can inharmonically change a neighboring string like B and C sharp and play back and forth just fine. Mm-hmm. And it sounds, sounds really great. And I have a feeling that's what's going on when you hear really rapid sounding notes, like and the pian- pianos do have a technique of, you know, three, two, one or four, three, two, one sideways on a key. But, um, you know, I, I don't know as far as like what harpists, it, it, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe you, you can play a string really fast, but I, I think that. No, you're, you're correct. Probably... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the issue, like the piano and harp have a lot of similarities and things that are difficult on the piano are even more difficult on the harp. And the reason for that really goes into like the motion of actually physically playing a note on the harp. Um, It takes a lot more motion because there's really four steps that go into that. You have to place, press the string, play the string by closing your hand, and then you reopen before you can replace again. So it's a lot more motion than simply just dropping your finger on the piano. So yeah, repeated notes on the piano are awkward and you can do that really quick action, but it's not going to be as effective as like a wind instrument or a string instrument where they can do that repeated motion a little bit better. But on the harp, it's even more difficult and awkward. So a lot of the edits that I tend to make in music are avoiding quickly repeating notes, especially when they're like these hidden repeated notes, like within a texture of a chord, because it just doesn't work quite so well. So doing enharmonic equivalents can work really nicely. Sometimes it's just a question of, do you have to actually repeat the note? 
Right. <laughs> because on the harp, it's already going to be ringing. Maybe you don't actually have to repeat it. It's going to be more resonant if you just let it sustain and play a different note. Right. So there's a lot of little decisions that you can make on the harp. Uh, how much how much should be notated by the composer? Like if you want uh, a note to be a staccato, like do you have to do you have to make the instruction uh, damp or or you know something like that? Or will the harpists just do that naturally? If it's a staccato, they know they've got to damp the strings. You know that they just played. So if I'm being really honest, harpists tend to just kind of gloss over staccatos because right. a lot of the time there's not actually enough time to stop the note. Right on the string, it has to be like there has to be space for that because again, that takes a second motion to come back and make the staccato. So I I always recommend have like maybe two types of layers to notate the staccato, mm -hmm. just to reinforce like yes, I want this note short. This note should be short. Please make the note short. So having the staccato and then like a rest after it, or a staccato and the muffle sign after it, or just in some way be like reinforce that you want a staccato. Okay. Another trick though, we talked about the repeated notes. Mm -hmm. What happens with repeated notes is they just, they don't sound quite as resonant because you have to come back on that same string, which stops the sound of the string before right. you can play it again. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. also the definition of a staccato. So okay. if you want something staccato, repeated notes is the way to go because right. you have that muffle motion built in to yeah. the replaying motion. So you don't have to eliminate repeated notes. You can use them effectively um, and creatively if you're wanting that type of sound in your music. Okay. I uh, almost skipped over a very important question about pedals, <laughs> and that is uh, how much time do harpists need to change pedals? And does that is that timing affected by they're constantly busy with their hands? I mean, I mean, is it an independent motion, you know, that, or does it get slowed down with certain passages? But generally speaking, like how much time should I allow for? Um, I'm, if you want to do it like per pedal or per two pedals, like if, like if I'm going from I don't know C major to C sharp major, I mean, and it's a wholesale <laughs> change. Uh, you know, how much time would you need? Yeah, that's probably the number one question I get asked um, right. about pedals. So there's a lot of layers that go into that, but I tend to just like as a general rule, aim for one pedal change or pair of pedal changes per beat. Mm -hmm. Try not to do more than that. By pair, I mean, if you have two pedals on the opposite sides of the harp that you can change at the same time, that can count as a pedal change. Um, so if you're going from C major to C sharp major, that's going to take two sets of pedal changes because you would have to change like the G and C together or the G and E together. And then you have to additionally change one more on the right side of the harp. So that would take two beats to actually get there. Can a harpist do it quicker? Probably depending on what all is going on. Yes, the pedal changes are independent of what the hands are doing, but that's another level of like coordination. So if there's a lot of complicated stuff going on in the hands with, you know, different voices, jumps, you might want to scale back on pedal changes. Or if there's a section where the pedal changes, there's a lot going on pedal-wise, think about maybe having the hands working together a little bit, moving in you know, parallel motion, playing the same thing. So simplify the hands to allow for more difficult pedals. Another layer um, that doesn't get talked about a lot is just the balance of the harp playing in the different 
registers and how that affects the pedals. So if you're playing in the top register of the harp, usually I'm balancing the harp against my knee and my shoulder. But playing mm -hmm. in the top, I have to actually bring my shoulder away from the harp to reach there, which means the harp is balanced by my knee, mm -hmm. which means I can't move that leg quite as quickly around the pedals. Right. Second, if I'm playing at the bottom register, I'm leaning forward. I'm really balancing the harp mostly with my shoulders, but that hunched over position really changes my maneuverability around the pedals. So I'm going to be a little slower with pedals if I'm playing in the bottom. So again, if you're playing in you know, the extreme registers of the harp, maybe allow a little extra time for pedals or simplify the pedals. Or if you want something you know, really complex with the pedals, think about using more of that mid-range of the harp. Great. That's a very long-winded answer to your question. Well, no, 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 that's um, fine. That's but exactly. as a general rule, like aim yeah. for like one pedal change per beat, unless it's like a really fast tempo, then one every two beats. But try not to do more than that within a beat, especially not for a long duration of time. Right. Don't do Wagner, please. Right. Um, so, you know, we kind of mentioned, you know, like looking at the Tchaikovsky Nutcracker, Waltz of the Flowers, is, is a good example of like, don't follow exactly what you see. Don't look at this and, and, and learn how to write, write for the harp or don't use it as a good example. Um, Obviously, there are harp-specific composers, harpist composers, so kind of excluding them. Are there mainstream composers that you've played that you think they seem to get, you know, like their, their harp playing is very idiomatic uh, and you don't have to make a lot of changes? Any, any composers like that that you've played? So one really, really interesting example is Benjamin Britten. Mm. And he did work a lot with harpists, Ossian Ellis. And it's really interesting to see the difference in his music pre-Ossian and post-Ossian. So right. like the, one of his earlier works was the Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. The hard right. part's okay. It ha does have that big cadenza. It's, it's a little awkward. It doesn't work super, super well. Right. But some of the pieces that came after this collaboration, um, the Ceremony of Carols, I think, was written pre-collaboration, but then he worked with Ocean on this piece. That works beautifully on the harp. And then there were a lot of like harp and voice songs like um, Birthday Hansel, folk songs. There's a couple ones like that that work really, really well on the harp. And it's because of you know that little collaboration that they had going on to help refine some of the ideas. So we love having non-harpist composers because you all bring so much creativity you try things that we would never think of trying um just because we're like we're ingrained like oh you don't do this maybe right. you can do it i love it when composers bring ideas and i'm like i don't know if that'll work and then i try it i'm like oh my god this actually worked and this sounds so cool so bring your ideas but having the collaboration with the harpist is really lovely um as far as like other mainstream composers wc always works really lovely on the harp especially you know the orchestral harp parts um yeah. especially in terms of like the orchestration the harp part is so strategic it's mm -hmm. always heard it's always effective it's never wasted um right. but and it works really beautifully um compared to strauss which has richard strauss yes fun harp parts you cannot hear them like right. I'm practicing this. It's so awkward. It takes so much work and there's, you're never going to hear it. Yeah. So that's some of the things um, to think about. And then of course there's, you know, current composers as well that, you know, I'm playing music from, you know, my YouTube channel that most of them are non-harpist composers and it's 
been so fun to work with them and see their ideas. And it's usually just little tweaks that we make together. I don't go through and just like say, oh, we're changing all of this. I usually tend to be like, hey, this is a little awkward for this reason. Here's some ideas. What, What do you think? And sometimes we stick with the original idea because it's a specific sound that they're wanting. I'm like, okay, if there's like a couple awkward sections, that I, that's fine. I'm not trying to simplify everything. But sometimes it's a, more a sound that we can achieve better in different ways. Yeah. I was glad to hear you mention the, the Benjamin Britten, the, the interlude, uh, the, the harp interlude from Ceremony of Carols is maybe one of my favorite excerpts for the harp you know mm-hmm. the, the, it just i just always enjoy listening to that and it's actually um for people who like the movie a christmas story it's briefly hinted at on the christmas morning when he when ralphie wakes up and sees the snow so <laughs> there's actually a lot of classical pieces in that, in that oh yeah so, um, no that interlude is so fun to play it's and then there's the suite for harp i forgot i can't believe i forgot to mention that by Britain. um that's right. i love that piece it's so fun to play and it, right. it works it works well. It uses a lot of like non-traditional sounds and elements, especially for that time period. Right. We play it a little bit differently than we do other harp music, but it it works really well. And I think it's because Ocean had a fairly distinctive sound and that was reflected in the music. Right. Um, also, just for composers out there, I mean, you, this is something you can find quite easily from just a little bit of score study, but... Um, and really from late 19th century music, early 20th century onward, if you want an ambitious harp part, it, having two harpists in your score is actually quite common. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know like you can't pick up a Stravinsky score without, or, or Debussy really without seeing <laughs> two harpists in the score. And, and, and that just gives you a combination of pedal changes, you know, that you can get, you can get almost a chromatic sound if you, if you do it just right. So. Yeah. Another one to like, be able to see this interplay between two harps in the orchestral setting is the planets by Holst. Yes. Um, so effective with that use of two harps, especially Mercury, where you literally have the two harps in two different keys to be able to get that um, bitonal feel. It's right. so strategic. And then you know the last movement where you have alternating between different Bispogliando chords, and that that only works because you have one harp playing. Then the next harp plays while one harp changes the pedals and then they alternate like this dovetail scenario. Right. Uh, I recently, uh, you know, I mentioned that uh, in the uh, episode, I think it was episode 16 about score study uh, with Andrew Callow. We, you know, I'm, I, I actually pulled out the planets and read through the beginning of Mars, just my notes. And one of the notes that I made was there's two harps and one harp is going from low G to high G and back. And the other one's going from the higher G to the low G, the same two G's, but they're they're doing in opposite directions. And if you hear it together, it sounds like octaves. You know, it's a da 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 dun 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 dun. You know, but it but one's going da 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 dun 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 dun. And the other one's going da 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 dun 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 dun. And 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 I guess if you place the harps, you know, maybe not super close together. If you were creative, you you could actually get a stereo effect. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that could be an adventurous combination for a conductor. Uh, there's a there's a lot of things that the harp can do, and I feel like we probably don't have time to like give everything justice. But you know, one of the differences, obviously, between the harp and the piano is the piano really, unless you open up the lid and start playing around with the strings, there's not a lot that you can do to affect the tone, but 
harpists can play on different like vertical portions of the harp to change the sound like you can go higher you know towards your pegs and you know you can get harmonics you know in certain ways and uh you know there's also uh i mean there's all kinds of different effects and and it's like there's a word i can never pronounce unless i'm looking at it, it was like biz bizbliando <laughs> yes <laughs> thank you it's we like abbreviated I have, this big i um, have to i have to look that up but you know maybe just i don't know in th three or four minutes what are some of the effects that you that you can do on the har on the harp for modern composers to think yeah. about yeah there's so many. Um, if you're looking for like a good resource just to kind of see what's out there, harpnotation.com. Um, this was a doctoral project um, from a harpist. Um, I don't remember her name offhand, um, but she has so many examples there, written examples, demonstrations, just to kind of see what all is out there. That's my number one suggestion. Um, but if you're thinking about, you know, different ideas, you have the what um, David mentioned playing down at the bottom of the soundboard called presse la table or PDLT. That gives you more of like a nasally sound versus the resonant sound you get in the middle of the string. Again, you have harmonics. Um, usually you're just getting the octave harmonic. Um, and you do that by like kind of muffling the middle of the string to get that harmonic node where it rings an octave higher. Um, you can also get a little bit more creative, do higher partial harmonics. Um, that's not really a standard technique, so I would kind of work with the harpist on that one. I do have one piece that I play um, right now, Wasatch Crest um, by Kincaid Rab that has you're really going through all of those different harmonic partials. It's so difficult and it's so fun. Um, and then there's like a myriad of really special effects you can do, like you know, gong, you can do thunder glissandos where you do like a really loud glissando in the wire strings mm -hmm. loud enough so that they rattle against each other. Um, super cool. Like there's just so many things that you can do because you're physically playing the strings and you can manipulate that sound in a way that you can't on the piano. Right. You could also do like a prepared harp, um, work with the harpist on that one also, just because there's different people at different comfort levels. Um, but things like, you know, weaving paper between the strings is pretty safe. Party yeah. beads, scarves, so you have like, you know, a muffled sound, aluminum foil is my favorite. Um, mm -hmm. Like there's so many different things that you can do and with we, the harp. Because the harp is so resonant, it's, it's actually, it can be a percussive instrument, you know, it's like you mm -hmm. can do drum you know drumming parts you know the one hand or both hands if you want to do that so um i did uh for, fail to mention we talked about pedal diagrams for composers um there are plenty of articles out there of how to draw a diagram in finale or sibelius i just i have one that i got from harp column magazine many years ago uh that i saved but i just did a quick google search it's like there's all kinds of resources you could check out and see which one works for you but it just involves the shape shape designer i know for finale and uh and you could save it and you know i think there may even be a keyboard shortcut that i've used before but mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah it that's that's something that you can do with and it's not super difficult but you probably want to get a little tutorial first i um, can also send you a link to a presentation i recently did that with a notation expert who like went through a bunch of different plugins that you can use um for that right and we also have you know it's a universal system now you know it's like a smoothful smoothful i can never <laughs> pronounce it but it's 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 unique to like finale 26 or 27 whichever you know i can't remember which version was most responsible for that um but 
you know, like Dorico and Sibelius, like they all use this universal font now. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you know, what works for one, you can export to another. This does not fit the specific episode that we had that we talked about, but it does fit the specific podcast that we're doing. And that is, I love practice tips. And you said that you have an approach to practice that you, you would be willing to share. Uh, that's kind of a little bit different than just slowing down, you know? So what, mm -hmm. uh, what is a practice strategy or tip that you could share with us? So I have actually completely changed how I practice. And a lot of this is due to actually mountain biking, where I realized slow practice is very different than fast practice. Like the technique that you would use slow to like get over an obstacle, it's so different than the technique that you use fast. Therefore, yeah. slow practice does not necessarily help you play fast. I think that's especially true on the harp as well. You know, the yeah. articulation that we would be using to play something slow is not the same as fast. Mm -hmm. So I made that shift in my practice and I've started focusing more of my practice on playing fast. That doesn't mean I just play through a whole piece fast as I'm learning it because you're going to learn wrong notes that way and all of those things. But I do like tiny chunks up to tempo. And my goal is always to get a piece up to tempo as quickly as possible. And I think that's helped with my performance um, confidence a lot more because if you're playing something really slow, you don't have that fast muscle memory to be able to play fast when the nerves click, kick in. Um, then it's going to feel really unfamiliar. So playing fast, tiny sections, and then you start to expand those sections. Um, right. I found that that works really well. So I'll, I'm always encouraging people practice fast because then you can see, does the fingering that I choose work up to tempo? Because sometimes it works slow and then you have to do something different when it gets fast. Um, so slow practice is important, but don't only practice slow. Um, right. It also takes a little bit of strategy. So your goal is to practice fast or your goal is to yeah. play fast. What tools do you need to get there? Sometimes you need slow practice, especially for like rhythm work and figuring stuff out. Sometimes you need fast to be able to learn the motions getting between different notes. So I always try to think of it. Okay. What's my goal? What am I going to try to achieve in this practice section? What tools am I going to use to actually get, get right. there? One of my local colleagues is a, is a famous, I mean, pretty famous as far as piano teachers go. Uh, her, her name is Barbara Lister Sink. And she's got a whole injury preventative course and really focuses on ergonomic technique. And, and in her video, Freeing the Caged Bird, that was the first time that I had heard someone suggest she never, never does slow practice, but is always finding, you know, logical groups, phrases, and just learning them in chunks. And sometimes it might be two notes. Sometimes it might be eight notes. You know, you never know, mm -hmm. just kind of works on that so uh but that that harmonizes with everything even when i teach slow practice i always teach you never practice as if you're looking as if you're watching a video in slow motion but it's more of a you're going full tempo but someone keeps pressing pause you know mm -hmm. it's like take that time to think and then you go and then you stop and then you go and then you stop <laughs> and, and in all and, honesty it takes a lot less thought work to play in slow motion Yes. You can watch TV and practice slow. I don't yeah. know if that's actually effective. I would rather spend 15 minutes practicing strategically right. and then 45 minutes watching TV instead of an hour practicing slowly while watching TV. Um, right. Uh, well, I'll go, I'll go ahead and just, uh, you know, <laughs> since, since I'm the host here and I'm influencing listeners, I, I'm going to go ahead <laughs> and say right now, don't practice while you're watching TV. <laughs> I, I've watched, uh, I've, 
I probably this year I've read three books that all made a big point of that multitasking is a myth. What you can do is switch your attention back and forth really quickly. Like if you're practicing and watching TV, you can keep up with both, but it's like harp TV, harp TV, harp TV. And what you're, you're not getting the full, you know, you're not really getting every nuance out of the show unless it's just something you've seen a lot mm-hmm. and you're not fully paying attention to your harp so now you can enjoy both you know uh like if you just want to i just feel like playing harp and i feel like watching tv um you know you can do both at the same time and enjoy both but if you want to re- if your goal is to improve you want to avoid those other distractions in front of you that's just kind of my opinion based on what i've read but yeah or if you're short on time it's yep. better to spend like 15 really focused minutes rather than you know, an hour of distracted. Cause I mean, my life right now, I have a toddler. I don't have as much time to practice as I used to, yeah. but I would say with being more intentional and focused and strategic with my practice, I'm performing better than I did in college where I was practicing six hours a day of not quite as efficient practice because I didn't have to be efficient. I did have to be efficient, but not in the same way. Um, so you've shared quite a bit about, you know, working with composers, but you also have courses and, and, and ways that composers and and orchestrators can find out more about, you know, what you would recommend. So I guess let's just start with, first of all, where can people follow you? I know you're on social media, quite a few places. And then, uh, where can, how can people get in touch to find out more about your courses? Yeah. So I'm on most of the socials, um, at Danielle Kuntz Harp or Twitter, Danielle K Harp. Um, you can also, it's all linked on my website, daniellekuntz.com. Um, the course is super fun. I'm going back and forth between teaching it as it's available as like a self-study option. If you're just wanting something like a resource or you don't have the time to do something live. Um, and then I do have like a virtual option as well, where you can do it in a more interactive way. There's just so many details that go into teaching the harp or teaching writing for the harp and I could do like a two week lecture on it. This is not a two week like (laughs) lecture, but I try to keep it very focused, time efficient. So you can learn the tools that you need to get a good understanding of the harp so that you can then be really creative in how you write for it. It's not about, you know, locking you into a little box and you can only do these things. Um, It's just giving you those fundamentals. So I enjoy doing that. We go through, it's about five modules where you go through different areas of the harp, talking about the technique, talking about the pedals, talking about the formatting, how to make a readable score, and then strategies for like exploring extended techniques, if that's something that you want. And all of those details are on my website. You can also sign up for my email list just to get, um, be in the know if when the next enrollment period opens. Well, that's great. Well, Daniel, thank you for taking time to share with us today. And I just encourage any, everyone to just reach out and, and also you know, if you're a composer and want to write some music, um, you know, uh, you, you, you may have quite a few pieces already, you know, to, to work on, but, you know, maybe reach out and, uh, you know, just to get your advice and see if it's something, if there's collaboration as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you're, you're like working with another harpist or writing for someone else and you just, you know, want a second opinion on something, I do have score consults, um, that I offer or just like reach out, say hi. Okay. I always like to hear when composers are writing for the harp. Oh, excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you. And that's going to wrap up episode number 28. I want to thank you so much for listening. 
And just a reminder, if you have a private studio of any kind, you should check out the Fonz app through the link in my show notes. There's a free trial. I often forget to actually tell you how it is that they describe their product, but this is what they say. They say that your dream job shouldn't come with a catch. Writing invoices, chasing payments, rescheduling via countless emails, booking with spreadsheets, juggling multiple platforms. Forget that. Fonz replaces hours of admin work with just a few taps of an app so that you can focus on teaching and free up your time and keep your sanity while getting paid predictably. So, their word's not mine, but that is my experience. If you enjoyed this episode, I would request a couple of things. If you'd please rate it five stars and offer a review, if you feel so inclined, on the app of your choice, specifically if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, although I don't think Spotify allows a review, but you can at least rate it. And no matter where you're listening, even if you're on YouTube, I would love it if you would take the link for this episode and please share it with a friend, especially share it with your composer friends so they can learn more about composing for the harp in a way that will sound good and make harpists your friend. Well, that's all I have for this week. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be back with you again next week.